Hey, everybody. It's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Hey. Hey. Today we are talking Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. Classic detective fiction from back in... Ren and Stimpy's The Big Sleep, because that's what I... Oh. Uh, no, Ren. Stimpy. Is this the part where I call you uh, an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> you bloated sack of protoplasm. Yeah. One of the, as a side note, one of the funniest things about uh, the Maltese Falcon with Peter Lorre is that he calls uh, Green Street a bloated idiot. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> it all ties together. Yes. Now, um, The Big Sleep was written in what year? 1939. 1939. It is the first story or novel, rather. This is a full length novel that featured the famous detective Philip Marlowe. Marlowe. And Philip Marlowe is uh, a little bit different than a lot of heroes, but he became kind of a mold that he, the protagonists have been formed in for subsequent generations. Yeah, he definitely became the industry standard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, where you had, you had Sam Spade. In in uh, Hammett's fiction, who in the Maltese Falcon, the very first chapter, Hammett describes him as looking like the devil and kind of having morals to match. He was he was rather unscrupulous. Yep, he was definitely get the job done, and it doesn't matter if the outcome is the truth or or wh whatever it is, but it, mm -hmm. it's it's what his truth is going to be. Right. And at the end of the Maltese Falcon, you know, he basically sells out his love interest um, for revenge for his partner. Mm -hmm. That's right. And Hammett is probably the only detective fiction or mystery writer that uh, Chandler does not savage in his essay, The Simple Art of Murder. And it's almost it's bordering on it. Uh, in that essay, he pretty much slams all mystery fiction, especially that in the the British school, your Agatha Christie's and whatnot. And and Conan Doyle. Well he does it at the end of the big, the big sleep, sleep as well. Yes. He he actually centers it in Marlowe's character. Mar uh, Chandler believed that the the hero of a detective story needs to be a person of a specific character. Uh, a person who is a man of honor and able to maintain being this man of honor, even though he floats between worlds of law enforcement, organized crime, sleaze. He, he's, he's kind of made of Teflon, where he has his code, and it, that code is unshakable no matter what he does. And that's what we kind of get with Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe is the embodiment of what Chandler believed to be the ideal hero in a, in a mystery or detective story. Yeah, he is. He's a little... I mean, I know he eventually, this becomes the mold of your hard-boiled detective. Mm -hmm. um, and it, we'll, we'll talk about it later, how just far-reaching Marlowe becomes. Right. But in a way, it's kind of a simple way of looking at a character. Um, just because, now, now, I'm not saying that it's not a great story. It's just that looking at it at that, in that light, mm -hmm. it kind of takes away some of the the um the the drama right well also we're reading the we're reading this story years after it was written it's kind of like reading conan right 
and, and a lot of the tropes were invented by Howard, but by the time you get to rereading them, you're a little worn on them because they've been tropes for everybody. Well, they've been and, tropes for everybody, and 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 they you find out that that the origins of these tropes are kind of two dimensional. Mm -hmm. And and it really, it isn't until you add, especially with this hard boiled trope, to you add that just a, it doesn't even have to be a lot. Just a little bit of corruption, just mm -hmm. a little bit of uncertainty. Then you get a, an interesting character, kind of like, um, well, um, Deckard in in uh, mm -hmm. Blade Runner, right? Yeah, Deckard in Blade Runner, very similar to Philip Marlowe with that tad of corruption. Uh, he's a little more world weary. Um, Marlowe seems to be, and and the Cohen brothers uh, modeled. The Big Lebowski on the Big Sleep, and you have kind of that another a different aspect. I know you have you have. I'll take your it. word for it. I've seen the Big Lebowski. Right. I don't think it is the great movie that everyone else seems to think it is. Well, the dude takes on the aspect of Marlowe in the way he just kind of floats in and out of situations, and he emerges pretty much unfazed by no matter what happens doesn't matter he walks into a pornographer's apartment he walks into a rich man's house he walks into the an artist's studio he walks into the grocery store in his bathrobe you know he's he's the dude no matter where he is and marlo is just like that he walks into the police station he walks into a mob nightclub walks into a pornographic bookstore yeah he might put on like a veneer of being being somebody else he puts on a veneer of being somebody else but he's uh still philip marlowe right private eye and that's one of the interesting things about the character is is that he's kind of you know just kind of almost like zen navigates his way through this mystery well even his big disguise he does the one disguise in the in the right book where he puts on a hat flips the brim down and puts on the sunglasses and and affects his voice to be a little effeminate right and that's it and that yeah it's it's not an elaborate disguise right it's not a it's not a sherlock holmes i studied theatrical makeup for 20 years you know <laughs> to to do this you know he's not the master of disguise he's he just kind of walks in and and really that's kind of the way private eyes do it now it's you know you just i i had a former customer who was a private eye and I, I can't, I'm not going to tell you his name or anything. Oh, come on. No one knows who he is. No. Uh, but he tracked a suspect into a, a gym and he just grabbed a bag and walked right into the gym and nobody asked a question because it looked like he belonged there. And that's the secret is just, you know, you don't have, you don't need fancy stuff. You just kind of look like you belong, you know, like it's perfectly normal. That's true. But like like calling a parts house and telling me your cousin's going to buy a battery. <laughs> but but yeah, to be fair though, Philip Marlowe never had to walk into like the supervillain's lair with henchmen dressed up like clowns. This is true. This is true. Are you going are you about to make a Batman comparison? I just did. I, uh, other Batman. <laughs> no, I just did. I mean that's all I have to say. That's all you have to say. Well, who does? How many times in your life have you walked into You'd be your surprised. enemy's lair and they're all dressed like clowns? You'd be surprised. I mean, you know, there's that one guy that I fucking can't stand who works at a circus 
<laughs> I went to college in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Shit happens. Shit happens. <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. The Gotham of this Midwest. It is. The The story of the big sleep begins with Marlo uh, going to the house of General uh, Stewart. No. No. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a couple weeks. Um, Sternwood. General Sternwood. General big sleep begins with Philip Marlowe going to the house of General Sternwood uh, to work on a case. It seems General Sternwood has gotten some blackmail letters. He walks in. He uh, is told to stay in the sitting room, and he meets General Sternwood's youngest daughter, Carmen. Yes. And Carmen is this kind of spoiled socialite. She's a little wild. A little wild, uh, especially for 1939. I, I think she's a little wild even... By today's standards? Despite 1939. Yeah. Um, she's definitely, as a fictional character, I'm not saying as a, as a real person, mm -hmm. uh, she's got something... She's got a couple screws loose. And you can... Yeah. You could see this just as as she develops more through the story mm -hmm. um, that she's she's and it, it doesn't it's not apparent in the beginning, but as he encounters her throughout the story, you you kind of get the idea that there's something wrong with Carmen, right? right. Um, not not like incredibly like off. She's not she doesn't have a lair with people just clowns, right? <laughs> but she is. Um, She's definitely got something awful. Right. But in general, though, we're led to believe at the very beginning that she's really just kind of a hedonist. You know, she's she's into drinking and drugs and sleeping around and things like that. But she she would be um, at home in a anti-marijuana propaganda film. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. After he meets Carmen, Marlowe is brought to the lair and and really it does seem have that whole feeling of this being like the evil the boss's lair where it it's a it's a <laughs> it's a greenhouse filled with orchids and and sternwood is sitting there in his wheelchair and you realize that he's practically an invalid oh he's totally an invalid he he, he can't he he plies marlo with booze because he can't drink himself Right. So he likes watching other people. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's this part where drinking Marlo, and smoking drinking his, his brandy and smoking his, his cigarette and, and the guy's like licking his lips. Creepy. And then every time Marlo tries to get a beat on the guy, the guy's just very like, oh, well, do you like orchids? I hate that. But my greenhouse is full of them. <laughs> He's just that kind of douchebag character. Right. I mean, I know, I know he was played by a different person in the movie, but he's definitely got that city green street, like diab diabolical evil about him. Right. Right. This guy, this guy is, um, you know, a, a white cat away from being a supervillain. Right. <laughs> he's an oil baron. Right. His, he's, you know, his, his, he has no control over his daughters. And that's really why Marlo is there. Because mm -hmm. he has no control over his daughters, right? And and it's it's strange though. As much as we're kind of picking on General Sternwood as being this like sinister character, he's probably other than Marlowe the only like truly sincere character 
in yeah. the story. He's actually, he comes across as a sympathetic character in this story. And it's funny because in any other story, I would look at this character and go, I hope he dies. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, Marlo, he's going to die in the wheelchair while Marlo's sitting there talking to him. General Sternwood's problem is, is that he has received some letters of, of blackmail. Um, some gambling debts Carmen has accrued over her latest escapades. But not a lot. Not a lot. In fact, it's a drop in the bucket for Sternwood and his money. Um, in fact, it's so little compared to Sternwood's vast wealth that Marlowe just in initially says, pay him. Pay him. Get him off your back. Especially when it comes comes to light that um, he just paid an another um significant not significantly larger but a larger blackmail mm -hmm. um, amount and he paid that one off no problem right right and and but sternwood wants him to to look into this and see because he doesn't he knows that if he pays off this one it's probably it, it might be connected to the first one and this person is just gonna every so many months just hit him with another right. he doesn't want to get a reputation for caving in right the everybody and their brother Right, is going to throw something, especially with Carmen's behavior. There's probably lots of fodder that's going to happen. Yeah. Plus, he's very well connected, mm -hmm. um, as all rich assholes in these stories are. He right, all the right people. In fact, Marlowe got this job as from a, as a tip off from the district attorney of Los right. Angeles. Yes. So he's. Well, he's was that? It, was it the DA or was it his first assistant? Uh, it was the DA himself because the DA himself is a rich fucker too. And the assistant seems more like like a middle class kind of guy. You know, they don't go to the assistant's house and hang out in his study and smoke expensive cigars. They no, go but to he DA's hangs out house. with the assistant and it makes sense that the assistant would be the one. Hey, Phil, I know you... I think it, I think it might have been kicked down the line, but... It, I, I know you quit the service, but here's something. Here's a bone for you. Right. Easy, easy money, rich guy looking to looking to um, avoid paying off a, a gambling chit. Mm -hmm. And Marlowe is is, you know, he would have been a good cop. And in fact, a lot of the some of the police characters ask him a couple of times why he wasn't a cop. And he just has a problem with authority. He doesn't like to take orders. He likes to be given a problem and then solve it. Right. Rather than, you know, and that might be like a reaction to his time in the service. I don't even think it's, it's, um, a, well, it is authority. He says that, but I think it's, um, it doesn't play well. And I don't think he would like to have authority over anybody either. Mm -hmm. Um, I just get the impression that he just like, when he gets a task, he just does it. He doesn't delegate. He just goes and does it. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, he, and that's, and that's true. And if you're a detective, which you would assume that is what he would be if he was a cop, that's, you know, part of what you got to do is is delegate. Mm -hmm. You go do this, you go do that. You go canvas the area, you set up a perimeter, blah, 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 blah. And right. he does all that stuff himself. Right. He's figured out ways to do similar things on his own. So Marlowe goes to investigate this blackmailer. Finds out, I mean... Sternwood knew who he was. Oh, before we get into that, Sternwood also speaks about his uh, son-in-law. Yeah, his son-in-law disappeared. Well, who left? His son-in-law married his old eldest daughter, Mrs. Ray. Uh, I'm sorry, 
Mrs. Mrs. Reagan. Yeah. I forget what her first name is. I believe it starts with Vivian. Was it Vivian? The V. I think it was Vivian. Vivian Reagan. And incidental. You know, he's just, it's an old man musing about better times. Well, also because Reagan, uh, Reagan. To, he, he used to sit and smoke and drink and, and mm-hmm. talk with the general in the hothouse. Right, used to sit and smoke, and he was a former bootlegger, but he never never seemed to be after Sternwood's money or anything like that. He just seemed like a straight-up kind of guy. You know, he left that life behind him and was looking to retire. And so General Sternwood grew to like the guy, and he's kind of missing him now that he's disappeared. Marlowe takes the job, gets leaves the hothouse, and gets dragged upstairs to speak with Mrs. Reagan. And Mrs. Reagan is kind of the one who she 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 has nefarious contacts but she seems to have a better head on her shoulders than Carmen. In fact, because of General Sternwood's health, Vivian has taken it upon herself to kind of act as that head of household and and keep things under wraps. And Vivian believes that General Sternwood hired Marlowe to investigate Reagan's disappearance. Which Marlo will neither confirm nor deny because Vivian's not paying him. Right. Vivian's not paying him. She's up there interrogating him. And Marlo really loves to play the conversational chess game where you know, you answer questions with questions or I don't know. What do you think? You know, trying to, and, and he's trying to get information out of Vivian over the, pretty much this whole state of the house. The whole state of the family is what he's trying to pull out. He's like, what kind of mess did I just step into? Because he's met Carmen. For $25 a day plus expenses. Right. Right. Marlo tracks down the lead. Turns out that the guy is running a pornographic bookseller uh, in the back of a a used used book business. And there's that one scene he goes a couple of times. Yeah. And, and the and the guy next door is like looking out the window, like, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the the jeweler next door um, knows what's going on, mm-hmm. and just and I'm sure the guy sits there all day long, and anybody who goes into that place gets the evil eye from right pervert. Yeah, pretty much. He's like, ah, oh, mm-hmm. you're you're one of them perverts. Bet you are. And the the way he conf- he tracks things down is he he tails one of the he tails a random customer of of the pornographic bookstore just to see what it's all about. Right. Well, yeah, he 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 does that. He knows something's up mm-hmm. right at the beginning, so he goes and does a, a, the minimal amount of research for his cover. Right. And that's when he does his little disguise thing, and the whole purpose of it is for him to be a guy in the market for some used books that don't exist. Right. So if he goes in there and asks for a Moby Dick second edition, blah, 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 and the, the receptionist, the, the woman behind the counter, can't say, oh, that no one has that. It doesn't exist. Right. She knows the place is on the up and up, but she doesn't. She doesn't know books, yet they sell books. And he even says it to her, kind of ironically, you do sell books here. Mm-hmm. Because they don't, <laughs> and, and and that that brings to mind that Marlowe is a very sarcastic kind of character, um, and he is not afraid to give anyone he talks to a bit of lip, and yeah, it, it's, it, they can be beating on him, and he will give them lip. Yeah, 
because you know that's that's just the kind of guy Marlowe is, and it, and it's kind of funny that he's he's always he's always cracking wise, even even in the middle of his big revelations, he throws wisecracks in there. Well, because it kind of puts people off, right? It keeps people off balance, and that really is his main um, avenue of of interrogation mm-hmm. is to, is to get people to be off balance and let them um, tie their own noose, right? Right, like he, he's the type of guy who'll go in and and ask you. So you're still beating your wife, right? <laughs> he and he never. I don't think he ever actually accuses anybody of anything. He no. goes in and talks to them and makes them basically tell him what happened. Right. He is the master of getting the villains to monologue. Yes, and I've noticed that throughout all of the encounters that he has, all of the serious information Marlow gathers is because they think they have him on the ropes and they just start talking. Yeah, he just pushes the right buttons. And mm-hmm. if he has to take one on the chin, he so right. be. And, and now the, the great thing about this book is um, he, he he finds out this whole plot, this whole pornographic thing. Mm-hmm. And that whole plot thread ends about halfway through the book. Oh, yeah. And um, a nice, neat little bow. Yeah, yeah. Case solved, but there's still half a book to go, right? Um, because it, it just it it doesn't sit right with him, and something's nagging at him. So even though he's not supposed to, and he won't even say that he is even to himself, he starts trying to find out what the fuck happened to Reagan, right? Because he thinks that Reagan is tied into this, and that what Sternwood is actually asking him to do is investigate, and he's he's throughout the blackmail as a way to. Get him digging into that world. Right. Because it is a world that is tied up in what Reagan was doing. And if anybody knows where he is, it's going to be somebody who's either a blackmailer or a mobster or something like that. And it puts him into contact with the police as well. And he can find out things. Yeah, it's really um, Sternwood and his family find themselves in a situation where all these different um, factions, the police... The, the the criminal underground, the gangsters, the gamblers, the pornographers, they all kind of have a focus on the Sternwood family. Mm-hmm. And, and really, Marlo's just trying to figure out what exactly that focus is. Right. He doesn't even know it himself because he never he, he never admits to anybody, including himself, that he's looking for. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know he is, but but that's not it. Um and, and he goes about some some other um, what ends up happening is the pornographer is shot dead, right? Um, in kind of in front of Marlowe, and um, he he's trying to find out who did that, right? And you th- and 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 Chandler really kind of gives you a switcheroo because you think you think the entire book is going to be him trying to track down this guy that he only knows by footsteps, right? That's and, the only time, only way he's seen him. He comes in. The guy's dead on the floor, three to the chest. Carmen Sternwood is tied to a chair, butt-ass naked, high on God knows what. And there's pictures being taken. And this, and all he knows is that somebody ran out the back door, heard the steps on the back, and they started a car and drove off. And that's it. You thought it was, you know, that was kind of where it was going to be. Okay, this is a setup that's going to be a pain in the ass to try to solve. Right. This is also where you start to learn that Carmen Sternwood 
just a little off her rocker. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Or was she was she drinking a cocktail of laudanum and ether? Yeah, but she's she's like, but it's not only that. Like she physically, at, at one point he mentions um, oh, for his name, the um, the, the guy who bought all all of Sternwood's. Oh yeah, the other the the competitor pornographer. She mentions he he mentions his name, who happened to be the other blackmailer. Right. And, uh, her face goes like evil, and she starts. She starts growling and giggling, and and he describes us as as hearing her giggling as like rats in the wainscoting, mm-hmm. and and you just kind of get like there's something not right with her, right, right, and and he starts to sense it too, right, that that something's off with Carmen, I mean more than than her just being a spoiled brat, right, which is the impression you get in the beginning. Right, so he takes her home, lets her get sobered up, and brings her back to the house the next day, where he he believes he's going to find the scene of the crime exactly as he left it, but the body's missing, uh, the photographic plate is missing, but I think the photographic plate well, was missing when he walked in first. Yeah, the, the, the negative or whatever was missing. Right. Um, whoever shot him, shot um, the, the pornographer. Took the plate. Took the plate. Right. And Marlo thought it was going to be pretty easy that he'd go in. The guy, okay, the guy that uh, sent the original blackmail is done. All I got to do is wait for this photograph to surface and I'll know who got who who shot him. Right. And that was pretty much what he was going to plan to do until he came back and realized that the dude's body was gone. Yeah. So he had to figure out who was, you know, who took the body. And then as he's standing there trying to wrap his mind around that, one of the local mob bosses comes in. With the greatest gangster name in the history of everything. Lay it on us. Eddie Mars. Eddie Mars. I mean, that is the perfect fucking gangster name, Eddie Mars. Mm-hmm. He's Eddie Mars. He's the local. He runs a local gambling house. Yeah. And every, he's got his fingers in those sorted pies. He's a buddy with the DNA, DA. He knew Reagan because apparently we find out later that Reagan supposedly took off with his wife. Yep, he's uh, got he's got uh, members of the of the of the DA on his payroll. He's got police on his payroll, um, and he also happens to be the landlord for Senor um, Pornographer. Just so happens, this is my house. I own it. I rent it out to a guy. You wouldn't know anything about what ha- might have happened. Huh? You waiting on him? <laughs> yeah, and Eddie Mars is actually a really good foil for Marlo because mm-hmm. he is he is like the the opposite of Marlo. Oh yeah, very much. I mean, the, the not not personality wise because they're very similar. Right. He's but, he's kind of like the Marlo the Marlo's dark side. Yeah, he's he's the dark twin of Marlo. What Marlo could have been in a different world. Right. And and it's really interesting how Chandler has their encounters, uh, because their encounters are very cerebral battles between yeah. the two of them. Because they both interrogate people the same way. Mm-hmm. And and Mars interrogates Marlo and Marlo interrogates Mars. And they and it really reaches this stalemate and there's this kind of almost begrudging mutual respect between Mars and Marlo. The thing about Mars that that gets you is he starts 
from the beginning. And this is how you know that Eddie Mars is involved in all this shit. Mm -hmm. Because from the beginning, Eddie Mars starts calling him soldier. Right. Now, that seems like it might be incidental, but you've got to remember who hired Marlo. The general. The general. It's like, yeah, I know you work for the general. Yeah, exactly. Now, how would he know that? You're the general's little soldier. He knows that because he's got guys in the DA on the payroll, and this job was handed down by the DA's office. He knows that because Vivian is his best customer. Oh, that too. That too. So a rumor, a rumor he can confirm easily because Vivian Sternwood. Yes. So, so just from the beginning, Eddie Mars playing it cool is is basically telling Marlo, I know what you're all about. Mm-hmm. I know everything, and it's, you can't get anything by me, soldier. Right. That's the that's their first encounter, basically. And and we're, we're another big difference between Mar Mars and Marlo um, is that Marlo works alone. Mm-hmm. Mars has goons. Mars has goons, including probably one of the most notorious hitters in Los Angeles. Yes, and we'll get to him in a moment. Marlowe continues the case, even though Mars tries to warn him off the warn him off of it, as the good mobsters do. Well, everyone starts warning him off this case. Um, and and when when he, he finally gets to the bottom of the blackmail and who mm-hmm. shot whom and wraps that up in a bow, he keeps Mars's name out of it. Right. And Mars is very appreciative of that and, and wants to, to reward him. Mm-hmm. Now, the way it all panned out, the way it all shake, shakes out initially, Eddie Mars had nothing to do with anything except for renting a room to a pornographer who died. Mm-hmm. He had nothing. Why would his name even be in it right. at all? It, it, it shouldn't. And I think just the fact that, that Eddie Mars was, was gracious and thanks for keeping my name out of it mm-hmm. kind of like helped to just goad Marlowe into action. Into, into digging and digging and digging further because he, he really has no reason to be grateful. <laughs> right, right, because he doesn't need cops looking into him. I mean, on, on the surface, yeah, it's because Mars runs an illegal gambling operation. Yeah, but it's kind of like... Uh, I know, it's kind of like it's one of those kind of, okay, yeah, I'll talk to you next week, Eddie. And they count their money as they're walking out of the yeah. house. And and politicians go and it's and it's kind of like the the not secret secret right because there's there's politicians there there's town count city council members there's you know upper echelons of the police force and stuff like that and all of the the wealth of Los Angeles. Eddie Mars is not going to go down uh, for renting to a pornographer. Right. It's some of the other stuff that Eddie Mars is into that we don't really get too much of a, of a description of, well, we don't because, because Marlowe doesn't care. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't matter. None of that matters for now. Right. Um, when he starts digging further and, and I, I honestly think that, that it's because Mars just is so like, I'll put you on my payroll. I'll give you money. Yeah. Um, I could use a guy like you who's right, right. And I think Marlo's just like, why? There's got to be a reason. And I don't think that sits well with Marlo. And I think that the thing wrapped up too neatly 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's people, powerful people who want, want him to lay off now and want, and, and are thanking him and, and, you know, thanking him and, Oh, you've done your job. That's great. Here's some money. Go right. away. Um, you know, he does it later on. Vivian does it. Right. Vivian tries to offer him money. The, the interesting thing is, is that, and, and we were discussing this earlier when we were talking about uh, Vivian asking if he was looking into Reagan, but everyone he encounters asks him if that's what he's doing. Eddie Mars does it. Are you looking into Ray, Eddie Reagan yeah. or whatever Reagan's first name was? You know, uh, Vivian keeps asking him if he's looking into Reagan's disappearance. The cops ask him if he's looking into Reagan's disappearance. He's like, no, I was hired to look into blackmail, you know, this blackmail yeah. thing. I don't know what you're talking about, Eddie Reagan. And it's eventually everybody around Marlowe, everybody who gets sucked into the vortex of this case mentions, are you looking for Eddie Reagan? And eventually Marlowe says, sure. Yeah. I guess I'm supposed to look into Eddie Reagan. Well, not to anybody. Whatever his name is. Himself. Right. Yeah. He tells the reader pretty much. I think somebody did ask him once if one of the final times he was asked. He's well, like, no, I'm not looking into Eddie Reagan, but or Reagan, but I've been asked so much, I may as well be right. And 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 eventually, he does tell he he tells the general mm-hmm. that um, when he gives his tries to give the general his money back, he says, um, "I can't take your money because the case is not to my satisfaction. I don't think I did the job because I can't find." Reagan and the general's like, "How dare you like go above and beyond what I asked you to do?" He's like, "Oh, but you did ask me to." And yeah. then, he, then it's Marlowe's turn to monologue a little bit in in classic detective fashion and tell him everything that repeat pretty much everything that the general was telling him and why he would assume that this was part of the parameters of the job. Right, and and so, the general basically says. You know you're right. <laughs> you know you, what? Yeah, thousand dollars to find Reagan. Right, I'll, I'll double your money. <laughs> you keep the five hundred I just paid you for getting rid of that blackmailer, and I'll pay you another a thousand if you find out what happened to Reagan. And that's the other thing. Uh, another thing that go I think goads him into finding wanting to find Reagan is uh, Vivian pays him five hundred dollars on a on a ten on a fifty dollar job. Right. And and with the message, you're done. Right. Not not as harshly as that, but that's basically what she says. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. This should take care of. Here's a bonus. Now, the blackmail was for a thousand dollars. So he got paid half of what the blackmail was worth. Right. And in nineteen and in nineteen thirties, this was a lot of money. Five hundred bucks is a lot of money. He was set for a while. Yeah, it's a lot of ham and egg. It's a lot of ham and eggs. He was he was going to just kick back, probably buy some whiskey, and just relax until something else came along when he was low on money. Like this, the, that's the detective trope: is you know I'm going to do this job. He pays this much money, and I'll be and you know and not not this kind of workaholic thing where he's taking two, three, four cases all at the same time. Well, he had said um, after he got paid. That now he can he can afford to take a vacation and not have to worry about missing a job, right? Because he does only get paid twenty five dollars a day plus expenses, right? 
yeah. which still seems to be like well paid, but not right. And for Marlowe, those expenses are often booze and gasoline. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and cigarettes. Because Philip Marlowe, it this case takes place over what? The whole novel takes place over maybe five days total. If that. If that. And Marlowe drives all over the Los Angeles area. Or is driven. Or is driven. But by and large, he drives himself a lot. I mean, he he runs two or three times up and down the coast, you know, to various little shit towns, following up on a lead. That's just okay. You know, what 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 does this have to do with anything? You know, and he finds the Sternwoods. The assistant DA takes. He's like, take a ride with me. You might be interested in this. Drives him out up the coast, where they're fishing the Sternwoods car out of the fucking ocean. We don't want to give you any of the whodunit details, right? No. Even it's, it's an not, old book, but it's, it's still a classic. And the in these these whodunit details really, well, you can't spoil it, right? And and, <laughs> and they're they're nice. It's it's really well done. Um, it's, it's poor form to 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 spoil a mystery novel. Yeah, it is. Um, now that being said, I can tell you who didn't do it: Marlowe, the butler. <laughs> Two people. Um, that being said, now this is the first Marlowe story, mm-hmm. and like we we said in the beginning, Marlowe's effect ripples throughout the rest of this genre and several related genres. Mm-hmm. Um, you find Marlowe in in detective novels, yes, but you find Marlowe in science fiction mm-hmm. um, and movies. Uh, it's funny that you were um, you had mentioned Alter Carbon earlier in last week, right? You started watching that. You could totally see most of that happening in a, in a Philip Marlowe story. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I would I would uh, I would say that's def- yeah yeah. It, it has that kind of Chandler. Well, a, a that lot whole, of, it's, a lot it's of like a Chandler world. A lot, a lot of cyberpunk. Of, a lot of cyberpunk owes a lot to. To Philip Marble, mm-hmm. Marble, Marlowe, and Chandler, um, you know you have um, uh, Blade Runner. I had mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, is very Chandler esque, and, and again, it's another um, cyberpunk kind of kind of thing. Yeah, kind of a proto cyberpunk. Well, even even that, the like the Blade Blade Runner is a lot more Chandler than the Philip K. Dick book is. Dick right. is just on on its own with that. Mm-hmm. But right. If hum- Humphrey Bogart would have been alive when they did Blade Runner, Deckard would have been played by Bogey. Well, I mean, th- there's even an homage to, to the Bogart big part in the big sleep when uh when Deckard does the exact same thing um when he's doing his government survey mm-hmm. at the strip club. Right. <laughs> and, and then Marlowe goes through Deckard. And even influences uh, our particular genre of entertainment. As uh, here it comes, Wesley James Young tried to affect the same exact thing in our Star Wars campaign. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Wes always tried. Right. So saying that you know that that echo that one scene in in the Big Sleep, you know, just the ripple effect down through, and how many times it's been repeated. Right. That is a classic Bogart 
Well, even uh, even to an extent, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where where Indiana Jones goes into the Nazi castle and he borrows Allison Duty's beret and coat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah and, yeah, and and just walks in the door pretending to be a Scottish lord, right? Looking at the castles, right? I'm here to see the tapestries. <laughs> if you are Scottish lords, then I am Mickey Mouse. Oh, how dare he! And 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 that, of course, that kind of ties in being it's Indiana Jones, and it's part of that that pulp tradition as well, right? You know, that Philip Marlowe is definitely a pulp detective. Anything, yeah. yeah, it most certainly is. Um, you know, this is a little bit more long form, and I think it w- it was published as a book. I don't think it was mm-hmm. published um, in the pulps as as separate chapters, and then right, it wasn't. I don't think it was a serialization. I think, yeah, I think by by that point, uh, detective fiction as a novel. Well, I mean, you had Agatha Christie and whatnot in the twenties, so the mystery genre was booming, right? And and the- you know, the, pulp, the pulps were, were starting to dwindle at this point. Right, 1939. That was pretty much yeah. the end of the 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 end of the pulp era. And then you had Superman, right, coming. The right end now. of the pulp magazine and the rise of the uh, the golden age of comics. Yeah, so that's where this kind of stands. Right, and then the detective fiction kind of shot off to the side and maintained a steady trajectory even today, where. The, the detective story, the crime thriller, is probably one of the biggest genres in well, all of literature. And and that that it also launched that um I, I guess that that mythology of Los Los Angeles as a character mm-hmm. as this dark brooding um, seat of, of like festering corruption, right? With a with a thin veneer of glamour and sexiness on top. Yeah. Uh, Cody Goodfellow's Sleazeland. We reviewed that a couple weeks ago, uh, and we're, we're we're just in the in the nuggety corruption center of Los Angeles in that novel, but it's still the city itself is kind of a character, right. and, and and that that like image of Los Angeles lasts you know well into like the the eighties, and I think it wasn't until um, you had the rise of like of of rap culture. Mm-hmm. Where that started to change, and, and the image of Los Angeles sort of like lost that cops versus gangsters kind of you know in suits kind of right. veneer to it, and and became a little bit more um, just uh, I guess grittier. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, even uh, Cezanne Kohler's Crime Rave and whatnot—it's set in LA, mm-hmm. and and it has that kind of. You know, the seedier side of Los Angeles, although a little more apocalyptic in nature. Yeah, I, I think like just now it's it's the, the, the glamour, the glamorous sheen has been been taken off of mm-hmm. Los Angeles now in terms of L.A. as a, as a set. Right. And, and you get throwbacks to it. Um, but but, you know, Chandler's L.A. is definitely different than, let's say, like, a, you know, the LA that depicted in Friday. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, but LA is still a character. LA is a, and that's one of the things that makes LA a character is that it changes and evolves and, and reacts to the various stimuli. Yeah. Mr. Mojo rising. Now Chandler's writing. I, I personally love Chandler's writing. He, he's, he's really good with 
descriptions and and rather colorful prose. He definitely is. Um, he's definitely another adjective user, right? But he's not quite. I, you know, I I would rather read um, Chandler at his. I would rather read Chandler at his most purple than than Lovecraft at his most purple. I guess it's all a matter of taste. Um, you know, it, it's it's still it's a lot of adjectives. It is. It is a lot, a lot of, of dis, dis, descriptives. I guess the, like the real big difference is Ch- Chandler is trying to evoke these um, these metaphors to mm-hmm. get you the feel of 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 a of a scene, right? Um, and and, and, and Lovecraft is trying to 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 use adjectives to confuse and to um, make something that your mind can't quite wrap around. So it's two opposite uses of, of, of descriptors and adjectives. I right. Think. And the other thing is, is that you're reading uh, Chandler and Chandler uses so much slang and, and just, just that, that crime, crime culture dialect that you really feel like an outsider looking into this world. It's a it's a little bit off putting, especially considering that that a lot archaic of, crime. Yeah, slang. This, 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 the slang doesn't quite exist. Anymore. Right. Some 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 slang. A cop is going to be eternal. Mm-hmm. As long as we have cops, people are going to or the police people are going to call them cops. Right. Um, coppers. Coppers. Gats. He he likes to use the word gat for a gun. Yeah. Which which is persisted. To, modern time but there's a, a lot of of his of his uh slang is it just doesn't exist anymore and you can get it from context mm-hmm. it's not too hard but it, it's almost like um it's it's very similar to when you're reading a gene wolf book right where um you know he there's this flow of the language that you can get by reading it mm-hmm. um and then eventually words that, you know, because Gene Wolfe will like throw out a bunch of legitimate words. They're just Greek words. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you kind of get get what they mean just by right. context and reading. Um, Chandler does the same thing with, with um, crime slang. But I don't think that that I think at the time it was sensational. It was it was, it was more accepted slang. And I think more people knew it. Right. But the effect is to, to us, to people reading it now, you know, 80 years later, um, that it, it's archaic and you kind of have to, to read it and get the flow of it. And then you, you get into it. Well, Chandler does uh, get a good joke in because he says the one guy was talking like a gangster in a film and says that all of them are trying to do that now. Meanwhile, they're gats and cops. And- right. <laughs> Right, but I, I, I just kind of liked how, how he brought that aspect in. Uh, a lot of the Chandler stories I've read, you know, you never really get that, that the film aspect of Hollywood. It's always just another city, you know, with mobsters and stuff like that. There's no crooked film producers or anything like that in, in this section. Um, you know, one of my other favorite Chandler stories is The King in Yellow. No relation. No relation, although... Uh, <laughs> Robert Chambers does get a kind of a shout out in that book as the character remembers having re- read something called yeah, that. About a, a singer, right? Who's n- known uh, as he's a trumpet player. They call him the King in yellow because he wears yellow suits all the time. And he ends up, uh, ends up dead. 
and it was done as a a, a Philip Marlowe story for radio. Philip Marlowe wasn't originally in the King in Yellow, but when they did the radio play version, which is really good, they made it a they made Philip Marlowe the main character. Well, of course, because Marlowe was popular. Well, he's the name. I mean, you know, it's like Robert E. Howard is Conan, Raymond right. Chandler is Philip Marlowe. Well, it's just like in um when they adapted a bunch of, of Howard comics mm-hmm. Marvel and they ran out of Conan stories. They just wrote other, you know, adapted his other stories and just made the character Conan. Right. Because, you know, people know who Conan is. Who the fuck knows who Bran Mar is? Right. Well, a or, couple people, but. Or Solomon Kane. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, it, it, you know, popular character. Got to sell them. But. Got to uh, sell cigarettes on the radio, right? Got to sell cigarettes on the radio. Got to sell that blue coal. So you need that that name recognition. Hey, Philip Marlowe and Raymond Chandler is the king in yellow. Ray, Ray, baby. Baby, blah, blah, blah. I like your story, King Yellow. I'm not so so uh, hot on the character, though. Well, what do you say we, we make it Marlowe? What is this, a hotel dick? Who cares about hotel dicks? <laughs> dicks in hotels. Ha, <laughs> ha. Yeah. <clears throat> kind of sleazy, but understandable. Yeah. But overall, The Big Sleep, excellent book. Um, it just pros. It just pulls you along, pulls you into this crime-infested, seedy underbelly of Los Angeles. Yeah, my, and, my favorite part was when Ren dressed up like the mouse mm-hmm. and Snippy had to chase him. Yep. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And uh, that's all for this week. Uh, join us again next week. For stuff. We for have stuff. A- yeah, we're, we're for stuff. It's going to be one of many things. One of many things. We uh, we've got a lot of stuff coming up. Yeah. So be sure to take a listen. Check it out. And as always... Keep 30 luck points. <laughs>